Um, it's great to be here again and to see so many familiar faces. If we haven't met before, my name is Boaz, and this morning it's really my honor to be able to preach the Word of God. And today, whether we realize it or not, it's June is actually just around the corner. And, you know, we're almost halfway through the year, and I thought it'd be great, you know, especially in light of Sam's baptism this morning, that we just take some time to reflect and to consider where we are as Christians, as disciples of Jesus. Because before you know it, we're going to get swept along in the year, and it's going to be Christmas. And so I thought, let's just take some moment, some time to just stop and see what does God have to say about discipleship. But first, let me start with something that we all love. Food. There's something magical about deliciously cooked food. For many of us, a perfectly cooked juicy steak gets us excited. For others, maybe something warm, something crunchy, like a good bowl of hot chips would just draw us in for more. Or maybe you're more the dessert type. So a freshly baked sticky date pudding <laughs> with a good generous dollop of butterscotch toffee sauce on top and a nice scoop of vanilla ice cream to go with it. Ah, oh, it gets us so excited, doesn't it? <laughs> and if you're like me, a plate of rice with a serve of crackling pork belly. Oh, just gets me. It'll make me a happy man any day. <laughs> and this, this food really has a way with us, doesn't it? Especially if it's food that we really love to eat. There's just so much to enjoy about it because more often than not, you'll find yummy food like this in restaurants and cafes where the chef knows what they're doing. You know, there, the, the food has been skillfully prepared and deliciously presented. It's food that just gets you racing with, with the freshest of produce and ingredients that produce a quality meal. This is an experience that you not only remember, but you want to share with your friends and your family because food is something that we really enjoy. But the only way that we can enjoy these foods is if we're allowed to have it. If I want to get my hands on my wife's mouth-watering barbecue ribs, I have to get on her good side. There's no two-way about it. And you know, in the Bible, we're told that there will come a time when God will throw a great banquet in celebration of His rule as King over the world, in a time when evil is removed and the wrong things of the world is made right. And we get a great picture of this in Isaiah 25, verse 6. It says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich foods for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people. The shroud is probably the shroud of death, as we'll see in verse 8, the next verse. He'll destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. And here now, verse 8, he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord 
will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. What a great picture of those who will be found in his banquet. There will be great things in abundance. Death will be swallowed up. There will be no more tears. There will be no more disgrace. But what is disheartening is that not everyone will be there at this banquet. Not everyone will be able to enjoy this banquet to, to come that God is going to throw at the end of the age. This banquet is only for his people, for his disciples. And so the question is, who are his disciples? Who are these people who, who will enjoy this banquet to come? Well, this morning, we're going to look at what Jesus has to say about disciples. Today, we're going to turn to Luke chapter 14, verse 25. And if you have your Bibles with you, what I would love for us to do is to pull your Bibles out. If that's on your phone, pull that out, open up your Bible app. If you have it in paper form, you are a rare specimen. Pull that out as well. And we're going to have a look at what Jesus has to say in our very Bibles. Now, if you don't have a Bible, it's okay, it's on the screen, but if you do, there's something special about looking at the very words yourself. So open your Bible to so Luke chapter 14, and we'll be looking at verse 25. But whenever we read the Bible, context is everything. So before we start at verse 25, I'm going to back up to verse 15 to help us set the scene here. In verse 15, Jesus is answering the question of who will be found in the kingdom of God. And so he, he answers this question by painting, by telling this parable of how a man was, throws a banquet. And in this banquet, it's similar to like the one we read in Isaiah 25. And he instructs his servants to go and invite many people. But all he gets in response are excuses. Oh, I just bought myself a field. I can't make it. I got myself five pairs of oxen. It's a no for me. I just got married. No can do. So see what this man says to his servant in verse 21 in your Bible. Somewhere in the middle of the verse. It says, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and, and bring in the poor, the, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. In other words, fill this banquet with these people, the lowly of society. And in fact, Jesus is saying in the kingdom of God, it will be filled with people who are desperate, with people who recognize the honor of being able to accept this invitation. These people will be my disciples. And so with this context in mind, we can now turn our attention to verse 25 of Luke chapter 14. Here Jesus is describing what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. So with three things that I want to share with us today, three things about discipleship that Jesus measures out from verse 25 to verse 33. The first thing about discipleship is that discipleship isn't assumed. When Jesus was here on earth during his earthly ministry, he was surrounded by followers, people who listened to his teaching. 
But do you think that they were all his disciples? Probably not. Because people are just drawn to the latest craze, aren't they? Do you remember the Pokemon Go fever that swept across the world in 2016? If you don't remember, maybe these images will help jog your memory. If you're not part of the craze back in 2016, people would flood the streets to play this augmented reality mobile game called Pokemon Go. And basically, with mobile devices in hand, people would swarm the streets in droves in attempts to try to catch a Pokemon based on their physical location. And if people would do this for Pokemon, then surely people would have done the same thing when Jesus was around when they had no mobile devices in their hands. Because Jesus was the latest craze. He was known for healing the sick, the the blind, the lame. He exercised demons and, and raised the dead. If there was any place to be, it was following Jesus. But Jesus makes it clear three times here in this text that just because you follow me and hear my teachings, that does not make you my disciple. Look at it for yourself. In verse 26, it says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father, mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And again, in the following verse, verse 27, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And finally, in verse 33, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Jesus makes it clear that even though you hear my teaching, not everyone can be my disciple. Did you know that there are Christians who will insist that they are Christians who will not be Jesus' disciple? There are those who come to church week in and week out, be found serving, attend life group regularly, who will not enter the kingdom of God. But you say, why, Boaz? You're being so cynical. Who said that there are Christians who, or people who come to church on a weekly basis who will not enter the kingdom of God? Well, for starters, Jesus makes that clear right here. That unless you obey my teaching and put them into practice, you cannot be my disciple. And what about the parable of the sheep and goats? Have a look at the image on the screen. In the, in the Middle East, Sheep and goats are pastured in mixed flocks. They're all put together, and you see that they're hard to, to tell apart. And so when Jesus tells this parable, he says one day when he returns as the judge, he will separate the sheep, those who have done his will, in serving and caring for others, from the goats, those who do not. And what about the parable of the wheat and weeds? Jesus told of the parable of how there's a farmer who, who sows some wheat on his field, but someone comes along and corrupts it with weeds. But rather than destroying the entire field, the farmer says, wait, hold on. We'll do it at the day of judgment, the day of harvest. 
when we'll separate the weeds, those who are not genuine disciples, from the wheat, those who are followers and disciples of Jesus. And so the warning is clear that even though you may be found in church, surrounded by Christians, are serving in church, are born into a Christian family, that does not make you a disciple of Jesus. Because discipleship isn't assumed. Why? Because secondly, discipleship costs everything. We skimmed through it earlier, but look at what the cost is. Look, look at what the conditions of discipleship is. In, in verse 26, Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, that word hate is rather strong, isn't it? It's a bit hard to understand. Is Jesus trying to tell us here that we are supposed to hate one another? What do we do about verses like the two greatest commands? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. What, what about John chapter 13, verse 35? By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What is Jesus saying here? To, to, to hate your father and mother. Well, actually, this phrase, to hate your father and mother, family, and so on, is a Semitic idiom. And for those of us who need a little bit of a refresher of what an idiom is, it's an expression of words not to be taken at face value. Or it's a collection of words that means something else. Today we have an idiom that we say like, you know, um, I'm over the moon. You're not actually above the moon, are you? No, you're happy. You're delighted. Or how we might say everything's just up in the air at the moment. Well, I, I don't see anything up there. No, things are uncertain. They're unresolved. They're idioms. And so this phrase here, to hate your father and mother and, and, and all that, that's, that's an idiom. It means something else. But what does it mean? Well, Matthew's parallel account of this verse actually helps us understand this. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, it says, Anyone who loves their father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. If anyone loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Aha! Oh, that makes sense, doesn't it? To hate your father and mother, it's not to dislike them. It's not to show hostility to them, but it's how when you love your father and mother, you remember that your love for Christ is greater. Almost appearing to hate your family in comparison. It's just like how, for instance, you have a good friend and your friend is going through a great financial uh, situation, and you know that he or she is struggling in so many ways, but the thing is, you two are going through a bit of a financial tight spot, and you and your spouse, you've been saving up to get yourself a second car for some time, you know, to ease your commuting strain, 
But one day, you feel really strongly led by God to give a significant, a significant sum of money to your friend, which is effectively the cost of that second car. And so to obey God and to break the news to your spouse that you're, you're led to give this money can be seen as almost hating your spouse in comparison because you show greater love to God in, the, in your obedience to Him, in your trust in Him over your spouse. Jesus tells us of one condition here as a disciple, you have to comparatively hate your father and mother to show God greater love. And the second condition he, he states here in verse 27, he says, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now we hear this phrase to carry your cross quite a bit, don't we? But what does it mean? After all, we don't actually carry or drag crosses around town, do we? So what is Jesus saying here? Well, we have to remember that back in Jesus' time, crosses are a stigma of public and social disgrace that leads to a savage death. You can picture how when Jesus was carrying his cross and was surrounded by a multitude of people, they would have mocked him and scorned him and ridiculed him. And that's the picture that Jesus is painting for us here. As Jesus' disciples, we are called to take up our cross and follow right behind him. So if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, be prepared to suffer ridicule and mockery. Because as Jesus' disciples, the way we live is offensive to the world around us. Just as how we, if, if we have to put our foot down to protect our marriage bed, in and out of marriage, or the way that we, we own up for a mistake that we might have made, or the way that we affirm that we believe in this Jesus in the Bible. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, be prepared to suffer for your integrity. As you carry your cross, be prepared to lose your prestige, your comforts, your, your pride. As you remove those relationships, those excuses, even if it leads to death, whether socially or professionally or even literally. Discipleship costs everything. And thirdly, discipleship demands awareness. Jesus is the master of illustrations. And here in this verse, he, he gives two illustrations, one of tower building and another one of going out to war. But for the sake of time, we'll only look at the first one, tower building. Jesus was telling how if you are a disciple, it's like someone who sets, sets out to build a tower. But if you're going to do that, would you not first consider how much that cow, tower would cost? In verse 28, Jesus said, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? You want to be my disciple. 
you want to share in this banquet to come? Great. But are you aware of the cost? Because it will cost you everything. Jump forward with me to verse 33. Jesus says, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. It will cost you your heart and your love for God over your heart and your love for the house and the the car that you just bought. It will cost you your desire to climb up the ladder in life. It will cost you your comfort, your security, your pride. Are you ready to lay that down for Him? Is your heart ready to give it all to Him? If not, look at Jesus' warning in verse 29. He says, it's like if you lay the foundation of this tower and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish it. You say you're a Christian, a disciple of Jesus, but when the bottom drops out from under you, when your child is diagnosed with cancer, or when your revenue in your business begins to dry up, or when interest rates begin to rise, do you start skipping church on Sundays just so that you can work more? Does your life become an emotional wreck? Do your words and your behavior become toxic? Do you start filling your time with drinks and the screen? Jesus says, that you must be aware of the cost. Like someone who started to build a tower and couldn't complete it. If you want to be a disciple and are not aware of the cost, you will become a laughing stock. If you call yourself a follower of the sovereign Lord. Or worse still, our lives discredit the name of God. Discipleship demands awareness of what it costs to be his disciple. So now that I've got all of you cheered up, (laughs) I thought it'd be a great idea if I should try to find some way to help us out, to find some way to put things into practice. And so I I thought I'll I'll suggest two practical applications, two things that start with the letter R and hopefully it's easy enough for us to understand. So the first thing we can do if we want to set our hearts and our lives right before God is to recognize, to recognize. If you want your heart to be right before God, to live as His disciple, the first thing we need to do is to recognize What holds our hearts? And be specific. Because it's no use to you if you just throw a vague blanket over everything and just say, life, life has me. Or just things in my life. No. It's important that we first identify what it is that holds our hearts. And then only then can we deal with it. It's just like how we might do some weeding in our gardens. You know, most of us, we find weeding to be tedious, don't we? It's, it's backbreaking work and it's time consuming. And so 
During the COVID lockdown season, we decided that we should really make the most of our lawns, you know, to allow our kids to run about outside. So I did some research and discovered that there's a magical way that you can rid yourself of all these weeds without all the backbreaking work. I discovered the world of spraying chemicals. <laughs> but if I just pulled out the ever-effective Roundup weed killer, you and I both know that I won't only be taking out the weeds, I'll be destroying everything along with it. No, what I had to do was to first identify what these weeds were and then order myself some selective herbicides to take out only the weeds and not the grass. If we want to set our hearts right before God, the first thing we need to do is to identify what it is that holds our hearts and not just wipe everything out along with it. So ask yourself, what am I holding on to? Is it my finances? Could it be my family or my personal time? Is it my security, my comforts, my fear of the future? Is it my unbelief in Jesus? What are you holding on to? And then once you sort of identify that, or maybe, maybe perhaps you, you, you don't know what that is, Maybe you just need to spend a bit of time to sit down and just reflect on your own. In, in a bit of silence, sit down for a couple minutes and just reflect where you are in life, at home, at church, at work. And can I suggest something? That when you do that, ask the Holy Spirit to show these things to you. And when you do, more often than not, He'll show them to you. Just something simple. Holy Spirit, where in my heart am I being held down to? And maybe, you, maybe we just need to ask our spouse. And don't they know a good deal about us? <laughs> ask a close friend. Ask a family. I recognize what it is that holds our hearts. And then secondly, the second R is to then release. You know, one of a, a remarkable tendency of us humans is our desire to hold on to things, isn't it? You and I, you who have kids would know that they never had to be taught that. I never had to tell our kids, Cohen and Ariel, now, you, you see this chocolate? I want you to hang on to it with all your heart and all your lives. Don't let it go. Even if it costs you a finger or two, do not let it go. I never had to teach them that. It's always the opposite, isn't it? Now, kids, you've got these chocolates, and it's, it's wonderful that you have them. But please, remember, share some with Daddy. All right? Um, no, no, share some with other people. <laughs> we had to teach them to share because our human nature is just to hold on to things and cling on to it, which can be great in life, like our desire to get married, and then the resolve to, to remain faithful in that, in that marriage. Or how we, we want to do something and do it well. And so we, we are determined to finish it right through. To finish what we started. They're great traits to have in life. But the issue comes when these things take priority over God. When your submission and obedience to God 
becomes secondary. Like how he prompts you to tithe, and that becomes secondary to you paying your mortgage. Or the way that you, you, you're, you're, you're led to move, but you just love being where you are, and so you resist obeying. Or how your heart is stirred to read your Bibles more, but you rationalize that I'm already stretched for time. But what is amazing is that when you release these valuables over to God, you're saying to Him that you prioritize Him and that you trust Him with these valuable things. To close, let me tell you a story. It's a story of a man who fretted for 15 years over his work. He had built his business up and had become a, a rather sizable operation. In fact, the, the large plant he owned had covered several acres. With growth and success, however, came ever-increasing demands. Each new day brought a whole new list of responsibilities. Weary of the worry and the stress and the fear, he finally decided to give it all over to God. With a quiet smile of contentment, he prayed, Lord God, the business is yours. All the worry, all the stress, all the fears, God, I release into your hands, into your sovereign will. From this day forward, Lord, you own this, this business. That night, he went to bed earlier than he had since he started the business. Finally, peace. In the middle of the night, the shrill ring of the phone awoke the man. The caller in a panicked voice yelled, fire! The entire place is going up in smoke. The man calmly got dressed, made his way into his car and drove to the plant. With hands in his pocket, he stood there and watched, smiling slightly. One of his employees turned to his side and said, what in the world are you smiling about? How can you be so calm? Everything's on fire. The man answered, yesterday afternoon, I gave this business to God. I told him that it was his. If he wants to burn it up, that's his business. Sometimes, the loss of something very significant in life, perhaps something that we're enslaved to, is the only way that God can get our attention to release our hearts to Him. But must we wait for that loss before we release our hands to Him? Must we suffer God-wrenching heartache first before we trust Him? Or worse still, will it be too late? Will we miss out on this banquet? Recognize what it is that holds our hearts and then release it into the hands of the one who invites you into His banquet in the kingdom of God as His disciples. So Father, we pray. We thank You so much for Your Word. Lord Jesus, thank you for your teaching and the truth that you have revealed to us 
about who are those who will be your disciples. But Lord God, we know that life is hard, challenging God. And so Lord, we pray that you will help us in our weakness and where we struggle, God. Oh Lord, you know that we cling on to things. Help us to just release our hands, release our hearts so that we can be your disciples. Just as how you took it to the cross, you carry your cross and have called us to follow you. Oh, won't you help us, oh Lord, to carry our cross and follow you right to the very end. We thank you, God. We pray all this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people say, Amen.